What your your video's you know, I'm, crisp. I'm fancy high tech now. Your video's crisp. Just leave it. You're good. It's crisp. I promise. There you go. Fix but your can hair. You hear us. <laughs> It does sound better. So I did go back and listen to the first episode this morning. So it's going to sound better than that, no matter what is the guess. Yes. <laughs> and probably 90% of my roundtables. Yeah. So. Y'all were way nicer to me back then. You know, just so much has changed. Y'all were very complimentary of what I did and friendly and <laughs> just a bunch of jerks and give me a hard time. Save that for the podcast. <laughs> Want me to clear audio and stuff, show up places on time. Now you get to see the real us. This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Well, today's guest, he's no stranger to the show. We've had the privilege of knowing Blake Reber of Sealbox for many years. However, before there was ever a Sealbox, he was a past guest on episode seven. Yes, that's 007 when he was running one of the premier bourbon blogs on the internet called Bourboner. But I wanted to invite Blake on the show to talk about the past few years because he's been building an e-commerce business based on bourbon. And that is no easy task. We talk about legal licensing, his first sales, and how being scrappy about how he grew into all of his warehouses. And really, he built these businesses, but now he's helping kickstart many brand successes because he's giving them an online presence that was never there before. He's finding new customers through content marketing and now building brand loyalty through all his good customer service. It's a story about passion, knowledge, growth, and a little bit of luck. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Bill Sloan, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Looking at dusty bottles, we see typically 100 proof or less with the occasional 107. As for high proof bottles produced today, is it even possible that these will be fit for consumption in 30 plus years? Or are we going to hit a period where the market gets flooded with old barrel proof shelf display bottles that no one can ever drink? I think it's worth considering for a lot of folks, and maybe it's something that has rarely been discussed. Thanks, Fred. Well, first of all, Bill, I'm going to nominate you for question of the year. So this is probably the best above the char I have received all year. This is an incredible question, and it lets me be a little geeky. I get to jump into my history for a second. Now, all right. Get ready, y'all. If you don't like history, just skip past this because you're going to get real bored real fast. So what we're essentially talking about here is a couple things. One, the barrel entry proof changed in 1962. So a lot of these old dusties that are 100 and 107 proof, they couldn't reach the proof points that we wanted to today because the barrel proof changed from 110 to 125 in 1962. Now, whether or not that was a good idea, I mean, I don't know. Whiskey hasn't you know, died, obviously, so it's it's doing just fine. But it did limit what barrel proof was. And then there was this whole, like, uh, schlacking of bourbon by vodka and other spirits. And so there wasn't really an interest to kind of change the, the profiles of bourbon, really, until we get into the 1980s, and that was even minimal. But when Booker's came out uh, with a cash drink product. So Noah's Mill was right there too with the cash drink product. Rare Breed was not far behind. You started to see people kind of perk up a little bit like, ooh, I like that. Don't forget, Scotch also was putting out cash drink products. And while that was going on, more consumers started liking it. And now it's just, there's cash drink everywhere. So the the mid 2000s to 2023 has been a, the rise of cash drink without a doubt because consumers... You know what? We want to change the whiskey to how we like it. We don't want the distillers, you know, jacking around with it. At any rate, could it last? Could it get hurt? Now, it's worth noting that Brown Foreman, which I think is one of the most conservative whiskey companies on the planet, they play it pretty safe. 
they chose to not do cast strength for a very long time because one, there was some thought within the Brown family that it was promoting irresponsible drinking. So if you're thinking about cast strength and the wrong person drinks it, they get drunk a whole lot faster. So there was some concern about that. The other thing is the closures, the cork or the screw cap or whatever you're using has a much harder time maintaining the tight fit around the glass. So I think that if you have problems with the cork today of a bottle, like Wild Turkey, Wild Turkey may be the worst company out there with closures. So my thought is that, you know, and I just I just had a I had a rare breed from the early 1990s, maybe mid 1990s, and it tasted like crap. It was absolutely awful. In no way, shape or form was it indicative of that incredible distillery. And it was simply because of the cork closure. It was not a good fit. It allowed too much oxygen in there. And I'd say even some of the cork even slept into the particles slept into the actual whiskey. So it was not a good fit there. Whatever cork they used was not good. But you have some distilleries like Brown Foreman, which, man, those those corks are on there tight. They're really tight. Wilderness Trail, which uses a synthetic cork, I mean, sometimes I need a pair of pliers to get their cork off. To me, it's all about like the the quality of the cork that's used and how well it's fixed into that opening. Also, some things that we don't have a lot of data on is uh, synthetic, like the long-term use of synthetic corks in uh, storing whiskey. There is a lot of data out there, a lot of studies out there that show that microplastics can come from water bottles, things like that. So you would have to assume that a synthetic cork, if not consumed with that, say, let's just throw in there for 10 years, that the pressure from the alcohol could have an impact there with that synthetic cork being affected there. So, I mean, I'm not saying it would, we'd need some more data on that, but you know, in 10 years, we're going to have that information. And sometimes, sometimes these uh, synthetic cork manufacturers or these distillers will actually paint those corks. Those are the, the, the synthetic corks that are painted or dipped in some kind of some kind of a residue that gives it a cool color, if you will, when you pop that cork, you're like, oh my gosh, this is a black cork, it's awesome, or it's a purple cork, wow. I worry about that more than I do the plastic itself, but I prefer a good quality cork over anything. Now, the screw caps, I think we have great data on screw caps, and screw cap whiskey, as long as there's not some kind of like a wax coating underneath the cap, then they usually hold up pretty well. I think that's a very good question. And I do think that in 30 years, a lot of bottles will be absolute trash because people cheaped out on the cork that they use. And a good indication is if you open a bottle today and it's only five years old and the cork is having problems, it's going to be trash in 30 years. I mean, that just take that to the bank. If you're having problems now, you're definitely going to have problems in 30 years. I cannot thank you enough, Bill, for this incredible question. I thought this was, like I said, best question of the year. So shout out to Bill. Bill, hit me up. I'm going to send you something special for this. Like you're right now, you're my leading champion for question of the year. So that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to be like Bill, maybe even you got a better question than Bill. I doubt it, but we'll see. Hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button. And if I like the idea... I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000273. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can 
but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another fresh, brand new episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. And today we're going to be joined by somebody that's, if we talk about repeat guests, he might be the most repeat guest only because he's always a part of the roundtables. But this was somebody that, of course, he's a close friend to us. I mean, we, we all know Blake from uh, Sealbox. But the real reason we brought him on is because I was looking back and I'm like thinking of good ideas. And I go, well, Blake was on episode five and we haven't had him on since then as his own kind of solo episode. And he's done, I would say, a little bit more work in the bourbon realm and spirits world since then. So it's it'd be good to kind of get into the mindset of what it's like to build an, an e-commerce site on booze. But I know, Ryan, this has been something that he's been instrumental to us as building a brand, I'm sure as many others, too. Well, we, we, we try to be very careful with nepotism in this, you know, in the podcast, we can't just like Kenny's brother come on all the time. And so, uh, no, it's always, I remember, you know, I remember when we reached out to Blake about the first episode and we're like, there's no way he's going to respond to us. It's like, and then he's like, and then he, and I'm like, we're going to have the guy that made like the, God, what's the Weller, <laughs> the, pap, poor the poor man's, man's pappy. We're going to have the poor man's pappy on our show. We've made it. Like, this is going to be so huge for us. And then now we like, just gave it been downhill ever since. I mean, I didn't want, I'm glad you brought it up. The podcast has definitely gone downhill <laughs> since then. <laughs> we kind of relate it to like, you, you date a girl and you're like excited about her and then you get married and then it kind of fizzles out. That's how our relationship's been. <laughs> Like I said before the show, y'all were way nicer to me in that first episode. Y'all were very complimentary. You said nice things about what I was doing. And this is the intro I get. Then we met the real you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Then you spent time with me and you're like, yeah, it's uh." And there a meme of like, uh, no matter how good looking somebody is, there's somebody in the world that's bored of them. And it it can be kind of the same, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. But thank you for having me back. It only took eight years. (laughs) But in all seriousness, yes, it's been such a a fun ride and a privilege to be able to work with Blake and the friendship that we've created and just all that we're dealing with the same shit all every day. And it's like, it's just been great to be on this journey with you, brother. And it, it's, it's, been, it's been awesome. So uh, I'm really excited for you to share what you've been doing the last eight, 10 years or whatever. It hasn't even been that long. However, however long it's been. However it's so. been. Well, actually, it'll be five years for Sealbox. So it... It does not seem that long, but at the same time, it's like I listened back to, you know, the the old episode and I'm like, man, Seabox wasn't even an idea. And I feel like I've been doing it for forever. So it is just it's funny how long it's it's been and, you know, how things have changed. But, you know, kind of in the bourbon world, they've stayed the same. Like a lot of the general traits that people were doing back then, it's it's been the same. You know, they're not hunting bourbon has not gone away chasing limited releases you know people getting so- excited about bourbon sharing it building a community around it all that stuff is still very prevalent and ongoing which is fun to see and by the way is when we do publish this episode we're going to need a new picture of you in the pool to make sure that we can have that as the <laughs> the showcase image i think i've put that up but yeah that i I should have started with that story because, you know, we did the episode. Kenny emailed me. I was like, hey, I need like your headshot. I'm like, man, I'm an accountant who does a bourbon blog. I don't have professional headshots done. And I was like, yeah, I'll find one. Give me a second. And next thing I know, next day, post goes live. It's Kenny had gone on Facebook and found a picture of me in the pool with my son and then cut my son out. So it just looks like me with no shirt on and sunglasses. And I'm like... I appreciate you making me looking like the biggest douchebag ever. <laughs> By the way, it's that's still live on. I'm not it's still, in shape. It's still live I'm not on the side. Flexing. So yeah, it's yeah. still there. 
<laughs> Perfect. It's Perfect. never going away. That story will never die. You know, I'll I'll find another shirtless uh, photo that I can that I can send over of you know just to, just to keep it. We going. should do it side I, by side. I hate for people to be disappointed. Yeah, shirtless exactly. then, shirtless now. <laughs> How much weight has this guy? This is what four kids and the bourbon world will do to you in eight years. It's like Barack Obama, like seeing him beginning of the presidency yeah. and at the end. It's pre-presidency, post yep. yeah, That's that's about it. That's, you know, it's there's more gray for sure. So continues to go that way too. So kind of to give people a background of everything too, because as I mentioned, if you want to go listen to one of our best episodes, of course, was episode five, but don't give us any crap about the audio quality. Things have gotten a little bit better since then. And you got to hear the story of how he started the Bourboner blog. But we'll kind of skip that a little bit and kind of talk about how you did the transition or how you got the idea to start saying, well, I've been doing this blog forever. Let's get into the e-commerce booze business, which today might not seem like crazy. But back then, it was asinine to think that you're going to go down that path. Yeah, for sure. And it is funny, you know, I tell people the story now and it's like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I see how that worked. I'm like, well, it was not the case five, six years ago by any means, you know, there was very few people selling online, you know, e-commerce and DTC was, was not really a thing in the alcohol space. So, you know, for those of who haven't heard the story before, basically I had this blog called Bourboner and it was picking up in popularity and growing the email list and started doing this pro membership. And that was before the days of Patreon. So it was very, you know, manual and and just trying to figure it out and MacGyver everything together to make these memberships work. And a big thing was the private barrels. So we did, you know, 10 to 12 private barrels a year. And then around, I guess it would have been 2017 ish, a company that was advertising with us, they were looking to sell their license. And I knew about some of the DC laws and just how it's a little easier to move product in and out of. So I was like, well, you know, it, maybe I'll buy the license and it wasn't an exorbitant amount of money. It wasn't cheap by any means, but, you know, I'll buy the license and, you know, start moving my private barrels through there. And then kind of all at the same time, just realized, oh, there's a lot of new people coming into bourbon. You know, we're getting hundreds of thousands of people following these Pappy Van Winkle release maps. but you know, they're not making more Pappy or George T. Stag or making them more available. So people want rare and limited and unique, and it's just far less of that out there for the things they're chasing. And at the same time, these craft distilleries, you know, craft had a much, much worse reputation back then, five, six years ago. But some of them were starting to emerge as making really good products. And you know, I always tell people, you know, walk down a store and you look at a bottle, it, it's hard to tell a story within that small window of time you have with somebody in a liquor store. Most of the time they're going in and knowing what they need, but the online medium was just a much better place for that. You know, we can, between emails, videos, reviews, tasting notes, all this other stuff, we can explain the story of the brand, get people excited about it. And I almost thought of it as like, it, it's the extension of the distillery tasting room. So if you go to a distillery, you do the tour, you hear the story, you understand how it's made, you're much more excited when you walk into that tasting room and they have bottles available and much more likely to purchase. So kind of the idea was just how do we, one, you know, move some of these private barrels over, but at the same time, move into these emerging brands and these up and coming brands. And, you know, I couldn't have predicted what was going to happen over the next five years, but it really did transition that way where a lot of people were getting burned out by buying the same bottle. So they're looking for something unique and different. And I just kept trying to make Sealbox be that spot for all these new distilleries and emerging brands. And as they grow, we grow with them. And so, you know, I always tell distilleries and, and people we work with, like, we want to be your first retailer outside of your home state. And that's not always the case, but we want to be super early in that process because, you know, we're trying to build a market of people and an audience that have shown interest in these types of, of bottles. And so we can expose new brands to a, a, a fairly large audience at this point. And, you know, that's if, if that's what our customers after is always the new and unique and the next big thing, it's just a great relationship. So we're constantly, you know, bringing on new products, bringing on new brands, testing things out with 
people we currently work with. And that's the exciting part to me. You know, that's the part that I love, like to wake up and think about, you know, how can we do things a little bit differently and how can we tell our story better, tell the distillery story better. That's the fun part. So kind of the, the long road to how we got here. Well, I guess the long story, but you know, it's a lot of ups and downs along the way. It's, it's nice to say now, you know, five years later, like, oh yeah, look how far we've come. But early on, there's sometimes it's like, really, is this worth it? Like I'm trying to run this business that doesn't really make a lot of sense to people. And I'm doing it from Jacksonville and it's in DC. And, you know, we just had our twins at the time. So we had four kids, four and under. So traveling back and forth wasn't really in the cards all that much. And it's like, is this worth it? <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm a little stubborn, I guess, but glad I stuck with it. And we're definitely on a better spot now. But, you know, running a business, as y'all know, it's just, it's hard. There's depressing day, there's great days, and you, you just got to keep pushing forward no matter what and get lucky and hope that people really like the products. And some days you have both where you're depressed and excited. <laughs> you can wake up in a great mood. You can be depressed 30 minutes after, then you get a big, yeah, it, uh, it's, you know, the, the ups and downs of entrepreneurism. Yeah. I remember you were talking about being that first outlet, you know, outside of the state, you know, and you graciously were one of our, you were our first customer and we were one of yours and we were trying to do the online, you know, only because of, we grew a brand digitally and we thought that was, we were with you. We thought the, you know, the, the future was that online customer and we wanted to be it. But then like quickly we learned that a lot of people didn't want to go online. They're like, why can't I go in stores and get it? You know, and this and that. So like, yeah, though those earlier days, it took a lot of convincing people that this is okay. It's safe and it's easier, you know? So what were some of the big like pushbacks you experienced in those early days? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the fulfillment side and the shipping side is always just, it, it's a constant battle. Call it the Amazon effect. Everybody wants things to be shipped for free and show up within a day or two. And we have stretches where we're good at that and getting stuff out. We have stretches where just things going on, we're not good at it. And so that's always, that's always a battle. And, you know, the laws are constantly changing. So you're, you're trying to keep up with all of this and and just kind of the nature of what we do with a lot of single barrels you know i think we did 300 plus single barrels last year and we'll we'll break that by a pretty good amount this year they're limited and so you know the worst thing you can do is send out an email and it sells out really fast well you're kind of excited and then there comes the flood of people of like well what the heck i was online at you know 303 and it says sold out like, well, like, yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, w I wish there was more. So, you know, always kind of just managing expectations and, and being able to have something that's next and, and similar. And it's just business in general. It's like supply and demand, trying to make sure those line up somewhat closely or, or relatively closely. And then just operations it's it's always it's a, it's a constant battle and you do things and you test them out that you think are going to be brilliant and it's like up oh, you know nobody responded to that one and then other times it's like eh, we'll throw this out and see what happens and it's just a flood of people wanting to buy the product so i mean i think that's just the constant thing is is we're always looking at what's next like where are people finding us how do we get more people like that you know if we have ninety thousand people on our email list there's probably, you know, a couple million people just like them in the U.S. that maybe we could target. So how do we get them interested in what we're doing? And then believers in these brands that we work with. So, yeah, it's just at the end of the day, it's a business. You have the, the operational headaches, the HR things, the finance things, all the fun stuff. But at least at the end of the day, it's it's around predominantly whiskey and bourbon. So that that makes it nice still. I remember back in the early days too, the, the 2018, I felt like we might've been one of your first stress tests because when we released our first pursuit series of episodes one and two, that was the first time that you had kind of gotten, I think it was like probably 150 to 300 orders all within the span of five minutes. And I remember you said that at the time you used to have the Shopify phone in your app and it would give you a ding 
every time you made a sale. And this one was like, I can't keep up with it. But even after that initial sort of burst, then it becomes, as you'd said, it's like, how do we get this out to people? And you had also said that it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole with figuring out laws and, and everything like that too. So, because I remember very early on, it's like, you know, like this state's offline. All right, it's back online. It's offline again. Like, what do we do? And, oh, UPS is saying this, but the federal government's saying that. Like, how have you had to navigate just the f- slew of paperwork? Or do you have a a direct line to somebody that's high up in UPS and saying, like, what's going on with this state today? Like, how have you had to try to navigate? And maybe not UPS or whatever your carriers are or however it's been. Like, how did you try to figure that out? Because that was... I figured that probably had to be the biggest growing pain is just getting through just the legal hurdles. Yeah, and it definitely is. And it's like early on, you talk to one lawyer and they give you one answer that sounds right. And then you talk to the next one and they give you an exact opposite answer that also sounds right. And you're like, okay, so I have somewhere in the middle maybe is the accurate. But thankfully, we've we've found pretty good partners along the way, not to say that things don't change or aren't in flux always, but that's just kind of the nature of the industry right now. But, you know, I think the the partners that we found on the back end between software and fulfillment and some other retailers, that kind of stuff, that's been the biggest help by any means, because it's bound to happen. We get an angry email and somebody's like, what the heck? I tried to check out and it says you don't ship to my state. I should be able to have this bottle. And I'm like, oh, I'm also in the business of selling things and I wish I could sell you this bottle, but your state says we can't ship to you. So that's just, you know, the the nature of the industry of alcohol in general. You know, it's a, it's a regulated thing. So I get it. We need to make sure those things are in place to for public health reasons, you know, I don't I don't want somebody ordering off of our site who's underage. So I want to make sure we're following the protocols to make sure that doesn't happen. So it's just a mix. It's it's constantly staying on top of it as best you can, you know, having attorneys involved, having partners that do this for a bunch of other companies as well. So they can, you know, they can stay on top of it even more than I do and and just going from there. But yes, that that first pursuit release was the real stress test. I think it was a failed stress test, but it it was. I mean, I think we were both just so green to what we were doing. You know, I think it was what, maybe four months after we launched and we were selling some bottles, but it wasn't anything crazy. And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, like 300 orders right off the bat and like what is going on (laughs) so you know i always tell people within business and and starting businesses and running businesses i think b and c students make the best entrepreneurs because you know i've failed some tests along the way i've you know been told wasn't smart enough or couldn't do things and it's like you know i i don't know i just keep moving forward and it really is like I I hope there's never like just some one severe blow that just takes away all of our confidence. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's there's some bad nights and, and that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like the ultimate goal is to get more people excited about unique products and to deliver those products to people and really help and come alongside of these growing brands and help them scale and get larger, get distribution in different states, understand which states they should go to. And, you know, so I always look at it as like if if what we're doing expands the craft spirits world, th- that's great. If if it doesn't achieve that goal, then we may need to look at it. So as long as we're moving forward and just like not say we're never going to backtrack, but as long as we're moving forward, getting more craft spirits to people and getting them excited about what they're drinking, that's the ultimate goal. And that's that's what I try to focus on as best I can. The other thing I, I love about your story is that you're super scrappy when it comes down to it. You, can you give folks a, an idea of sort of like what your warehousing situation was like in the beginning into what it is today? Well, it, it probably still needs some overhaul on the software side today. But I mean, we started out in a uh, just a extra space storage unit and we we're in one unit. And I think the closest I've ever had to having a panic attack was the first time I went to those storage units. And it's like, I had put a deposit down, I had basically signed the agreement, like I was all in, I go up to visit, do my inventory count, everything. And I'm like, 
what the heck did I just get myself into? Like, I'm, I've never, I haven't been to DC since I was a kid on a field trip and I'm in this city in like walking in to some random extra space and I open the door and it's just boxes everywhere and bottles everywhere. And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't even know anybody here to call and say, can you help me? Like, do I go on Craigslist and try to hire somebody to take out trash? And, and so it's definitely come a long way. So I think we hit the point where this would have been pre-COVID, I think, maybe right around when COVID hit. We were up to like nine storage units on three different levels in this extra space. And it's like, all right, this is just a mess trying to get things in and out. And they didn't like that pallets were showing up at different times. I'm like, well, we don't control the truck, so I don't know what to tell you. And so then we moved to a 2000 square foot warehouse and I thought, wow, we have really made it. We, you know, we could just be here for forever. And then within 12 months, it's like, we got to get out of here. We're busting at the seams and try to work some things out. And thankfully ended up finding a warehouse that was about 8,000 square feet. And that's been a great spot. So it's, we still have room kind of at times, you know, it, we're, we're real big on turnover. So it's like, Hey guys, it, it may be super tight for like two weeks, but I promise those bottles are going right back out the door. And so, you know, currently there's, everybody's working in there. If you've watched our Instagram, so D was the first employee and she was working at a bank. And so, you know, she'd leave the bank at like three to go try to pack boxes and do everything. And then, try to talk extra space into not kicking it out because technically 5.30, everybody was supposed to be out, but you know, there'd still be boxes that we needed to get ready and picked up by UPS or FedEx or whoever it was we're using. And it's funny how, how, how all that has, has just grown and expanded. And it is cool to see. D asked me at one point, she was like, now, do you ever just stop and look back and think about like how cool it is of what this has grown into? And for better or worse, I don't, I don't think, you know, I just always, my mind's like, well, I don't know. We still got all these problems over here that we haven't fixed. So why are we going to look back yet? <laughs> but I think eventually, you know, you get older, wiser or something and can appreciate it. But podcasts like this are, are fun to do that because, you know, just thinking about what Bourbon Pursuit was when we had that first episode and what it's become. I think that's the number one place. Whenever I talk to people, they're like, oh, I listen to you on the roundtables. So it's just, it's funny how we've kind of uh, just shared those parallel paths, both in, in growth and just getting bigger and starting new things, trying new things and going along the way. It has to be like, it is super hard to celebrate wins. I think, you know, we talk two or three times a month to try to like, just like, just so we're not like in our heads and we, we have like someone to talk to about all our problems. <laughs> I get and, the Bardstown calls. It's like, well, I'm driving to Bardstown today. So, and I need, an yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's so cool and it has to be so gratifying. If you do look back at what you've done, how many brands you've like basically built for them, you know, help build for them because you gave them a platform that they couldn't do. Like we could have never gone direct to the shelves and made it like you allowed us to like start our, dream and figure it out and then prove our model and then take it out you know to the traditional distribution route and that, that and i can't count how many brands you've done that for I me mean, it's got to be like 50 or something and it's got to be super gratifying and like i guess can't, i'm so proud of you for that if you're anything like me then you can't get enough about bourbon and that's why i'm a subscriber to bourbon plus magazine Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. 
Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. You allowed us to like start our dream and figure it out and then prove our model and then take it out, you know, to the traditional distribution route. And that, that, and I can't count how many brands you've done that for I mean, It's gotta be like 50 or something. And it's gotta be super gratifying. And like, I guess can't, I'm so proud of you for that. I appreciate that. And if any brands are listening, yes, it was all me. Um, (laughs) But it's kind of like the poor man's pappy thing. Like I probably rode a wave, but you know, if if we played a part, it's extremely grateful and humbling to to think that we did. But you know, a lot of these ones, it's they they were growing, and I like to think we did have a small part in some of them. But they were doing their own thing too. So Pursuit United would still be on the shelves today. If there was no seal box, I choose to believe. But I mean, and then looking back, it's, you know, I mean, I still give Bardstown a hard time because like, hey, I mean, I know you guys are pretty big now. You got Rick houses about every square inch of this property, but let's not forget who your first retailer was outside of the state of Kentucky. And I still remember at a Bourbon and Beyond, me and Herb Hinneman had, you know, we had a bunch of calls and we did an order for like 20 cases of Fusion One and 20 cases of Discovery. And he comes up and gives me the biggest hug. And he's like, man, we just appreciate that. That was huge for us. And now I'm like, hey, Herb, 20 cases probably not doing, getting me any hugs these days. (laughs) (laughs) But it is like, in general, the the people we work with are still great to us. I mean, there's no reason why they should still be working with us and making sure we get what we need. But they've always been great. You know, same with with y'all with all the new collaborations and single barrels. And, you know, I'm sure you have distributors kicking down your doors to get access to some of those. So it's always great when people still push those things our way, even like the blue runs, the new riffs, the rare characters, you know, there's just so many cool brands out there that we've been able to work with. And they've been really great to make sure that we have access to cool products because ultimately we have a base of people who are buying flagship stuff and kind of things that are somewhat around but in general we have a lot of we have a higher percentage of customers that are just waiting for something cool unique and allocated and they want to chase that so yeah how difficult is that from like a inventory management because like it's like you don't want to order too much of something (laughs) but you want to have enough because your customer is different than you know 90 percent of the you know common consumers that just go to the store and they get what they like every time it's, they always want something different. Talk about the challenges of that. The inventory game is the, the constant battle. I mean, not only is it space, but it's cash. And so it's like, okay, if, if a bottle's sitting there for 90 days, that's, that's cash on a shelf that we're not able to utilize to go buy more barrels, buy more product. And so, I mean, thankfully when I started it, I still had my accounting practice. So I could put everything back in. And then I think I started taking a salary about six months, eight months ago, just because I didn't want to slow down growth because, you know, kids got to eat. But (laughs) it just is. That's the hard part because we've had releases where it's like, okay, we ordered 40 cases. It sold out immediately. We ordered 100 cases. It sold out immediately. Let's go to 200. Sold out in an hour. It's like, let's go to 300. We sell 10 bottles. It's like, what what happened? (laughs) You know, and that's not typically the case. You know, we kind of have our metrics of how quickly we want to be turning everything over just to work within our model. But you you occasionally just have those and you eat it, you keep going, you find a way. And it's, you know, it's a little bit frustrating because I'm like, no, these are really good products. And for whatever reason, it just didn't connect. People had enough of it. I, I don't know. But you know, it, at least at the end of the day, I can say, well, I stand behind the products we sell. And if we just have too much of them, so be it. I'll drink some more. But, you know, constantly trying to figure out what's going to be next or how much you should order or that's the constant battle. I like to think I am have a fairly good idea, but there's surprises every month of 
what sells or doesn't sell. The one thing that I like about your model, which makes you different, is because you are all about, what's the tagline, like unlocking craft spirits, something like that? Spirits, yeah. yep. Which you don't sell Knob Creek and Wild Turkey 101 on the website because you are trying to get people into that. And and I have, I'll have a follow-up question after this one. But at the very beginning, I felt like you were the one seeking out the craft brands. And you're like, hey, I got this model. Let's do this. Like, Let's partner and come this way. And I'm sure that that teeter-totter has kind of flipped and gone the other way where now brands are coming to you and saying, I need to have a retail presence, an online presence, and I want you to be that person for me. So between the two of those, what was your gauge to figure out whether we bring somebody on to be on the platform? Because it also ties in with with Ryan's sentiment there. It's like, you don't want to bring on a dud that you're just going to be sitting on an inventory for forever. Yeah. And that's where it's a couple things. I mean, honestly, it's my capacity to onboard and we've gotten better with some systems, but in general, I'm still having 100% of those calls to explain the process, onboard, get products in, and I've gotten some help there, which helps. So it's like, at the end of the day, how many of those can you have a week? So that limits it for sure. And we probably miss some great brands along the way because of that. But I just felt like the slow growth of things, because we want to have we want to be able to give the attention to the brand and distillery that we bring on that we think they should have. And we can only send so many emails or text blasts or whatever it is a week. So, you know, at some point you just can't highlight everybody that you think is good or everybody who wants to be on the site. So you kind of have to pick and choose. And we take a step back and say, what are we trying to push people to? What's popular? Like if a brand comes along and they have this massive social media following, We've seen it in all kinds of different bourbon groups and that kind of stuff. And they want to be on Sealbox. Well, yeah, we probably would jump at that a little bit faster than one that they're just getting off the ground. And it's going to take a lot of explaining to say who they are, what they're making and that type of thing. So it's just, it, it honestly varies from week to week and month to month. Some we can get, you know, eight to 10 distilleries onboarded and in within a week. And then other times it's like, I'll just, go a week without having any of those calls because I'm like, we got to get these on the site. We got to get email blasts going. We got to get all this other stuff just to to really push them because you know at the end of the day, that's that's our whole motto and goal is to, to really highlight them and give people access to the bottles. One thing I was going to say is that you're kind of like in a distributor model where a brand has to get on focus where people you're going to talk about it. Like you got to get us push the sales. You got to do something. I mean, we're trying on our end, but yeah, what you've been able to do in building that, that huge email database and that list and the text email, like, or the text, like that's insurmountable. Like that's direct connection to them. But what are you trying to do as well? Beyond just text blasts and emails, like how are you trying to find what's going to connect a brand to a consumer? And have you found a strategy that's seemed to work well? Right now, it's just, if it's bourbon, if it's aged, if it's... If it's three check boxes, yeah. It's all the fun buzzwords. If it's if it's weeded, if it's toasted, if it's... You look at some of those buzzwords and it's, does it tell a story? Does it connect? And you get a good idea about that. And it, it's like, some of the times it's some of these brands, whenever they give us the, the story and the pitch, I'm like, oh, no, no, like, that's not what you should be focused on. Here's here's your story right here. But then it's like, all right, at the end of the day, it's it's their story to tell. And then we do have some brands where they give us this whole PR thing. And I'm like, I really love the product, but I'm just going to write an email. And then they're like, well, we didn't really like what you said about us. I'm like, well, it's the advantages of not charging you anything and just paying you for the product. So it, uh, it's given us some freedom, but I'm in the bourbon space day to day, you know, between just reading on Twitter and Instagram and all these other Facebook groups and stuff, you see what people are asking questions about and getting excited about and, you know, looking to find. And so if you see a brand or a distiller that people on the internet are constantly talking about, but they're only distributed in a couple states, well, that's that's a pretty good sign that they'd be a, a good fit as long as they fit everything else we do. So it's just a constant thing. And I mean, there's some that just reach out to me that I've never heard of. And I'm like, oh, wow, how have I never heard of you? This is really cool. We bring online and they do great. And then other times it's me constantly badgering somebody at the distillery to say, hey, here's what we do. This is Sealbox. Can we set up a call? So it's just a mix. Yeah, I think what's cool about 
your side is like you're almost the gatekeeper. People trust, you know, your judgment on a brand and are willing to take that leap of faith because if you're deciding to carry it as a product, you you stand behind it as like something that's a safe purchase and whatnot. And it's like, you know, I, I'm just thinking of like, do you find that that holds more value or does the brand have to prove themselves outside of Sealbox first for that? Or I guess what moves the needle more? Like, you know, you given the badge of honor, then building outside of you first. Yeah. I mean, I think whenever we have our new calls, I, I tell people we focus on two audiences. It's, hey, I'm sure you've had people that from the distillery or on social media or whatever it is that say, I want to buy your product. How do I get it? Let's get them. And then at the same time, we have this audience of Sealbox people that some of them have heard of you. Maybe some of them haven't, but they'll give it a shot because they've bought all the other bottles from us. So, you know, curated was always kind of the cliche word. I always say just vetted. We've always just pushed really hard how we vet things and vet products because we want that to be standard that we uphold and we want people to trust that. So if people trust us and, and it helps push them forward. Like, like that's just a win all around because you know, obviously that distillery picks up a new fan or client or customer. And at the same time, it's just another bottle that somebody gets and they try and they're like, Oh, wow, I, I do like what I have from Sealbox. So they're, they're more likely to buy again. You know, we're always looking at what percentage of our, of our customers are returning. What are they returning for? Are they returning for the same thing? Is it a different bottle? Do they only return for single barrels? Do they only return for a specific brand or special release? And just trying to figure that out. You know, I like to think that Sealbox helps push a lot of these brands and and bring some of that in. But, you know, it's a partnership, I guess, in a roundabout way. I guess to that, you know, you're you're using data to try to figure out your customers what are you doing to try to build that that customer acquisition or that customer loyalty? Yeah, you know, honestly, that's something we're still really, really working on and, and working to. So we we did start with like some paid ads just to get in front of the people that we not otherwise. And you can target people a little better based on just like throwing it out into the public because they may just never follow us on Instagram. But with paid ads, you can get in front of those people. And then just, you know, rewarding people for their support and loyalty like that that means everything to us so what can we give them in that is a value like is it access to cool bottles is it free shipping is it our bourbon or tasty notebooks in a pin or free glass so just always trying to test those things out and usually you know the first access to things is is always very appreciated. It's like, hey, if you've been supporting this brand and we only have so much of it, you should get the first shot. You know, you've obviously been supporting Sealbox through that. So we like to do that a lot. If it's if it's a low quantity count on a release, just say, all right, who's purchased from that distillery in the past six months? Let's give them first shot. If it doesn't sell out, we'll open it up from there. Plus those Navy seal box hats are in high demand. <laughs> I still have some. If anybody needs a seal box hat and maybe some polos or a, a hoodie, yeah, it's need to send more of that out. That's also the fun part to me is I'm like, okay, what else do we need? I'm like, belts? We need, <laughs> uh, belts. Yeah. <laughs> I need a new one. I, I had to throw my Navy seal. I got my Navy seal belt. I got too many sweat rings and I couldn't get them washed out. So. <laughs> Got one head in your way. I should have worn my, uh, you know, pursuit hat. I guess that would have been the uh, the appropriate thing for the interview. Uh, bottle in the background's enough, even though no one can see it. That's okay. <laughs> I I set it up very nicely. Well, we'll just let every guest we're going to have on be like they've got a bottle of pursuit in the background. See, that'll be the easy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, like no, I don't. Yes, like, you do. Yes, they do. It's and thank you for being so, yeah for wearing your pursuit t shirt and hat today. <laughs> or the uniform. Now, the other thing, I kind of want to bring it back into the, like, building this. Ryan and I, we've talked before about when we built Pursuit Spirits, about the cash and the investment that we kind of used to get it off the ground. And and feel free to talk about this or if it feels like you know, you're letting inside secrets, don't do it. But Ryan and I, you know, to start Pursuit Spirits, we pulled together $15,000 to just buy our first three barrels. And that got some glass and some labels. And we just kept putting money in over and over and over and still have yet to pay ourselves. Do you remember, and by the way, for anybody that doesn't know, 
bringing in a pallet of bottles is way more than 15,000 bottles to sell on a website. So can you share exactly like, do you remember the initial investment that you had to put in to get the license and get the site online before you got your first sale? Yeah. I mean, I think in total, I guess I'm not under any kind of NDAs with this or anything. I hope not. It's It's been long enough, I guess, but it was about $45,000, but that was kind of split up. But like, you know, I think it was like 15 up front, then another 15 in X amount of months, and then 15 based on sales. And, you know, it just seemed like this enormous amount of money. And it is, it's a lot of money, but I always went back and forth of like, well, do I need investment? Do I need to bring in a partner? And I just decided, I'm like, look, I'd, I'd rather just bootstrap this thing as best I can for as long as I can. And, you know, thankfully just have been able to continue to do that. And, and you know, we'll have some things here and there with some smaller lines of credit and that kind of stuff just to get through inventory carrying costs and that type of thing. And, but yeah, at the time it was like, oh my gosh, like I'm, am I just throwing this money away? Is this going to all implode? But it's worked out. And, you know, ever since then, it's like, thankfully, I don't have a very crazy expensive taste. Like, I just like the things that I like and I'll spend money on that. But I really don't care about cars or houses or, you know, I want to have a good dinner and maybe some some shoes or something like that. But everything just goes back into the business and it just continues to compound. And that's how I look at it. It's like, hey, even if there is profit, like, what do we buy next and what gets us to that next step? And, you know, growth was the most important thing to me. And I always kept in my mind of like, all right, I bring on investors if I had like specific plan for the growth. But I don't know that it kind of goes back to that. How quickly can we onboard a brand and a vendor and, you know, get more people out there? And it's like I, just the pace we're at now, it's it's still trending really well. So we just, for better or worse, try to keep it as lean and bootstrapped as possible. And then, you know, maybe somewhere down the line, just see what happens. But yeah, nothing makes you lose sleep, like just throwing money out there and hoping that it is the right decision. And it, it, not that it was a scam, but it's like, I don't know, is this just gonna all implode and, and oh, yeah. just truly right off? That's not going to be a fun conversation with my wife. And but no, yeah, well, you read reports and this and then I think your customer base is a little different, but you hear about, you know, depremiumization, you know, people are trading down right now. Have you seen that? It's hard because none of your brands are a lot of them aren't sub $30, but have you seen like that trend, you know, in, in the seal box model at all? Yeah, we've seen it a little bit for a time. It felt like nobody could put price tag high enough that, you know, it was just going to keep going and going and, we'd always get the feedback of people like, well, that's stupid. I'd never pay $500 for a bottle. And I'm like, that's fine. Like, I don't disagree with you. Like there's plenty of bottles on the shelf for 30 bucks that are good bourbon, but people are paying it and people want a special bottle. And, you know, I know we've talked about on the round table, people say, oh, I want to buy somebody a $250 gift. What should I buy? It's like, so that attracts a lot of people, but it, it definitely has, it feels like it's starting to pull back some where, you know, that $500 bottle sits a lot longer than it used to. But I think that's just kind of nature of the business. You know, it, it grew, grew, grew. And I don't think it's backtracking as much, at least on our end, but maybe it's just kind of leveling out and, and not continuing to go because at the end of the day, how many $500 bottles do we all need on our shelves? I think the three of us would say limitless, but you know, for the average consumer, you know, you just don't need to buy that every single month. At the same time, we still have plenty of $200 bottles that we just fly through and can't keep in stock. But you know, for the pricing side, we're always, I tell people we work with, we're a little bit different too, because if you have a $30 bottle, I'm sure if it's it's a great bottle, but just that human psychology of you think, okay, the bottle's 30 bucks, now I gotta pay $17 to ship it. That's 55% of the total cost or whatever it is going to just shipping alone. A lot of times people are like, eh, I'll, I'll just wait. So we kind of have our sweet spot, but in general, I think we'll see a slowdown of the ultra, ultra premium, but 
people still want nice things and will always attribute value or price to quality. If it's $200, it has to be twice as good as the $100 bottle. Or we have people all the time who say, eh, that bottle's only 40 bucks. It can't be that good. Like, well, actually it can. <laughs> that's the good news. It can. But that's the fun part of it too. Where are you see like i guess your consumers what do you think how they're you've kind of seen their buying patterns and trends over the last do you think it's going to continue like that or do you see them shifting like how would you advise a brand like to because to, to kind of strategize how do we still relate to this consumer that you know bourbon used to be like you get a brand and that's the brand you're with you know forever but now it's different especially with your model how do you how would you advise brands i guess with this new online customer you go to tequila because c-block started selling tequila now that's the easy yeah, one that's right it is i do i do love some tequila now i will not lie that's that's been my go-to for a good bit now so it's fun to have them on the site and gives me a reason to you know say i'm doing research and <laughs> but in general well we have a couple things we, we have a, a base of people and demographic that one they want to feel connected to the brand so like what are you doing with that like are you doing social media are you doing in-store tastings are you doing live tastings are you doing you know what is it that you're doing because people want to feel connected to the story the people behind it the brand for better or worse i mean i've not necessarily in the bourbon world but in a lot of other worlds, tequila, especially, it's like, oh, they have this environmental connection. It's like, oh, that's just flavored, you know, agave spirit that they're calling premium tequila. So it gets used for good and bad at times. But, you know, people do, they want to feel a connection to the brand and they always want something new and unique. And that's, I know we had this discussion when you came out with the, like the toasted series. I'm like, for us at Sealbox, we have to have those types of things because for us to just be like, oh, guess what? We got a restock of this. That's not too exciting. Like we want to tell a story. We want to, you know, have some media around it, all that type of stuff. So it's like, let's talk about what the product is. Like, why does it make it that much different that it was toasted cherry oak as opposed to toasted French oak or whatever it may be? So I think that variation and, you know, we saw Penelope be extremely successful with with that model they were always getting a new product out there and a new skew and that's hard because you know just throwing a new bottle out there to consumers seems like oh got another one but y'all know better than i that the work that goes into a, a new label new whiskey new bottling like it's just a lot so it's hard to be constantly iterating but that does seem to be what people are tending to go after. You know, they always want, the, especially if they find a brand they love and want to buy from them, they're looking for a reason to have that brand on their shelf again. But to just have two bottles of the same thing sitting next to each other, most people aren't doing that these days. One of the things I'll kind of wrap it up here with is that, you know, you mentioned earlier having 90,000 people on an email list, like most stores would kill to have that many customers that they know that they could reach out to. But you've also started your own house brand and doing your own sort of things there. But kind of tell us a little bit story about that. But I also kind of want to just dovetail it in as saying like, what does growth look like for you now? Is it more customer acquisition? Is it growing the house brand? What does it look like for you? Yeah, no, I think it's the house brand, the Sealbox Private Reserve will always be secondary. That's always just the fun project that I love tinkering around with. And it's also great because it gives us a little more connection of what's going on in the industry between sourcing barrels, bottles, and it, you know, just makes me be able to have more intelligent conversations when we're having, you know, these conversations with brands that we're bringing on. It's like, oh, if they have a problem or a bottleneck, I can say, oh, well, here's who I talk to for this. And so I think it just helps in general. And it's good marketing too, you know, to have bottles on shelf that say seal box. And we try to make them, you know, with the gold wax and everything to draw some attention. It, it, it's great marketing for us and people find us because of that. So we'll always continue to do that, but it'll never be the main focus, you know, maybe three to four different releases a year with some private barrels sprinkled in just for all those reasons but you know on the growth side it's it's that tricky you know chicken in the egg or problem of a market like 
we need more products to then have more customers. We need more customers to support more, bringing on more products. So it, it's trying to do both. So email list is big to us. So a lot of the conversations that we have are how do we grow that, you know, 200,000 people? What does that look like? And then if we have 200,000 people on the list, how many bottles and brands and new releases do we need? And I kind of alluded to it earlier, but you can only email people so many times a week before they're like, okay, this is this isn't enough. I'm unsubscribing. So it's like, if that list hits 200,000, how do you segment it to make sure that people are only seeing things that they're highly likely to be engaged in? Or, or purchased or something comes online, sells out and you get an email. Well, what the heck? My buddy got the email, but I didn't. It's like, oh, well, you didn't click on these buttons. So you weren't a part of that segment. And and that's the constant battle of like, if you're growing and you're pushing everything out, you know, it's like the fire hose method only works for so long. So at some point you kind of got to go more to the sprinkler method where it's like, all right, we're going to hit these different sections in the fire and not just a massive fire hose that we try to soak everything down with. So it's a constant battle, but in in general, I just still think there's plenty of room for growth on both sides because there's constantly new brands. There's constantly brands doing new things that we've talked about a year ago that we haven't gotten a chance to even bring back into, you know, some of these campaigns and pushes. So, and that's, that's the exciting part. I mean, the best part of my day is the fact that I wake up and get to think about like, okay, how could we tell this story or what else is out there? What do we have for samples? That's cool, unique, and different. And what's going to be next? Like what will people, is it tequila? Like, I don't think all bourbon drinkers are just going to go over to tequila one day. You know, when we look at who's purchasing from us, it's predominantly, I'll say like late 20s to to late 40s is our biggest demographic. All those people are not going to wake up tomorrow and just say, eh, I'm moving on to tequila or vodka or gin or whatever it is. Maybe they slow down, but I still think there's 20 to 30 years of maybe slower growth, maybe not just the hockey stick growth, but growth within the whiskey world. So and I think all those people should be purchasing from Two Box. <laughs> well, I think, you know, talking to people in the industry, there's 50 million bourbon drinkers in the U.S. And it's like, and then you think, okay, you know, especially with our brand and your model, it's like, all right, we just want like the top half percent of those, you know, which is, and you know, 250,000. So it's like, you know, I think that's attainable. You know, it's not unrealistic that you can, you know, grow that list double. No, and, and that's where we kind of break down our customers at I did at the end of the year. And it's like, I think it was our top hundred customers made up almost 9% of the sales and a hundred people to make sure they have an incredible experience and get what they need and are happy. That, that seems realistic. Like if I said, I want to make every person on the email list have a great experience, that's a much tougher thing to do. So that's always the fun part of as well as like, how do you reward those people for supporting you? And, you know, if, if you have the 0.5% of the total market, how do you get 0.6%? How do you get 0.7%, you know, and, and just going from there. And that's where I think today, when you see brands grow, they're everywhere. They're on all platforms. They're doing a lot with social media. They're not to say that you, have to do that. Like you could maybe just choose one and focus on it very intently. But yeah, I just think the more information we get out there and that's kind of our thing too, is like with the email list, we never want to just regurgitate a press release. We want to put in some good information and, you know, a story behind it and make it exciting. So then even if somebody doesn't purchase, they're still fine to open the email. And that's, you know, our email open rates and click rates, I think it's every 30 days, 79 or 80% of the total list opens at least one email. And majority of that is just because nobody wants to just see the same thing over and over again, but they may open it. It's like, oh, I was wondering about that bottle. Let me just see what they did on their review to what tasting notes they had. And sometimes they may, that may stick in their brain and then they pick it up from a store or try at a bar. And for me, that's a win as well, like, because that's unlocking craft spirits, whether you get it from Sealbox or not. There you go. I love it, man. Well, we'll have to put the timer on for another eight or nine years when you get your next solo show. 
yeah. Let's see. So let's uh, see how much. 2031. <laughs> Got it. Okay. See how much hair we ready lost. Ready to go. How much weight we gained. Yeah. That'll be the fun part. This was fun. I feel like we should do this even, uh, I guess we do somewhat do it unrecorded a few times a year, but it it is. It's always fun to to look back and and talk about what's going on and happening. So no, I appreciate y'all having me on. And you've done it a lot of times. So go ahead and give the sign off. Yeah. Blake from Sealbox and Bourboner, you know, I'll I'll throw both out there since I was originally on for Bourboner, but now you can find it at sealbox.com. There's a you know a pop-up to put in your email or your phone number for text and we have an app now that actually works most of the time and uh <laughs> i think i did talk about the bourbon app before and that thing never never took off it never really worked but no i just appreciate you having me the audience that you have today is just you know product of of all the hard work and everything y'all have done for the bourbon world so i appreciate you allow me to to jump on and and, and pitch sealbox to them well, we're proud of you and everything that you built as well i mean it's it's been insurmountable to think of what we've all come in just a a, a few short years and you're definitely one of the success stories and we of course wish you nothing but the success so hopefully we just keep this train rolling as long as we can ride the wave Yep. C students taking over the world. We go. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah, there you go. I was like, I was kind of like a 4.0 GPA person. I know. That's me, me and Blake that's are more. True. I've seen those spreadsheets. You were definitely way more type A. <laughs> well, Blake, again, let's appreciate you uh, coming on and kind of sharing the story behind Sealbox uh, really in depth because I'm sure a lot of our people that listen to this, if you haven't ordered, you at least know about it. And because it's it's been one of the things that has been a cornerstone for our brand as well for for any other brands out there as well. So make sure you follow Blake on Sealbox. Check out the website. Order yourself a bottle of Pursuit United. If you go on the site, every once in a while, they drop a free shipping code. So just pay attention to it. You'll find out. But also make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit. And I guess while we're at it, follow Pursuit Spirits. And with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Toodles. Toodles.